You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The state labor department says it's largely been able to tackle the initial number of unemployment claims filed during the pandemic. But the new CARES Act funding comes with additional restrictions. Uh, those safeguards, though, may mean that those who are receiving checks may see a delay based on what fund those claims are paid from. Last year, fraudsters targeted states across the nation, and millions were paid out without adequate safeguards. Federal investigators have sent out subpoenas as part of their probe, including to offices here in Hawaii. We talked to State Labor Director Ann Pereira Estacchio about the investigators' efforts to make sure only those eligible for funds get the money, and in cases where people have been overpaid, that those accounts are adjusted. It's all part of making sure federal money is properly spent. Well, the subpoena was actually just for some records here at the Department of Labor. That subpoena was actually issued back in June of 2020, so a while back, and they requested that majority of the states, I think actually all of the states, submit records from all of the CARES Act programs and because there's a concern of imposter fraud, and they are trying to work with the states to mitigate the fraud. Yes, and I believe that the last conversation I had with the former labor director, he had said they were just learning about these cases, and Correct. he had only been told by the investigators it was just a handful initially, but then it turned out to be so much money. Yes, it's much more than we all thought. Um, all the states are being hit pretty hard with fraud. And because uh, it's federal funding, the CARES Act programs are all federally funded, they wanted to make sure that they can find the fraud and if there's any specific rings out there and if they can stop it as soon as possible. No one expected the onslaught of claims that came in. And I know you've been working to try and knock down that backlog. What's the snapshot right now? The snapshot is we have pretty much caught up with majority of the regular unemployment insurance claim payments. We do have quite a bit of outstanding separation issues on regular unemployment insurance. But where our problems are now is the what we call the Pandemic Extended Unemployment Compensation, which is PEUC. And that program was initial 13 weeks of benefits. And once a claimant exhausted those 13 weeks, then they would go on to what we call EB. But prior to being able to be eligible for PEUC, we have to make sure that their initial claim of 26 weeks for regular unemployment was actually exhausted and that they were eligible to move to PEUC. But we found that many claimants were experiencing overpayment. And if a claimant has an overpayment, they haven't really exhausted their regular claim. So we couldn't start their PEUC claim without first clearing up their 26 weeks of benefits. So what are you saying there, that then there's a lag now? Yes. So, so there's a lag. So claimants would have to wait until they were contacted by claims examiners. They examine your claim and they determine whether that claim is accurately being filed or not. And so they would have to determine why there was an overpayment. And if there was, and the claimant and employer both agree that there was an overpayment, then correct that overpayment by adjusting the weeks in the regular claim. And then once those overpayments are taken care of, either by just those adjustments of weeks or and a claimant would have to pay back some, some of the benefits they received, then we would be able to move them to the PEUC process. How many people are we talking about? I don't have an exact number for you um, on the, you know, the number of claimants, but it is quite substantial. And we found out that there were quite a bit of employers who were paying their, claim, their employees um, what we call either PTO or vacation pay, 
and they were still attached to that employer. And when you're still attached, that means that you those earnings are con, are covered earnings and should be reported to the unemployment insurance office so that it can be netted against the benefits you're receiving for that week. And the claimant um, failed to report those earnings. And in certain circumstances, the employer did as well. But when they filed their quarterly um, filings for their payment of wages to employees, they reported those earnings, and that's how we later caught these overpayments. So there's so many snafus that could delay you getting a check in the mail. Correct. And there is a lot of frustration, you know, from people who have been waiting to get these claims processed. What is it that people need to know? So they've extended all of the CARES Act programs. So, for instance, with PEUC, they, they put in additional provisions. So if you exhausted your claim prior to the end date of the first 13 weeks and had a gap before the new extension of 11 weeks started on January 2nd, then either you're not eligible to receive any payments during that week for PEUC or you could move to what we call EB, extended benefits. Hawaii triggered on extended benefits in May because of our high unemployment insurance rate, and we won't trigger off until we reach under 5% of unemployment. And so once claimants start receiving EB payments, they can't hop off of EB and then try and collect PEUC for the additional 11 weeks. And so that becomes a problem for quite a bit of claimants because EB is 13 weeks. And if you wait to exhaust 13 weeks of EB prior to trying to obtain the second part of PUC, you're outside of that eligibility window and you don't get to receive any PEUC. And so explaining that to a claimant could be quite confusing. And so we're going to try and implement PEUC in different phases. So currently, if a claimant has a claim where they have not exhausted their first 13 weeks of benefits, this week they should be able to continue to file weekly claim certifications and start to exhaust their first 13 weeks. That's the first segment of PEUC that we're moving forward. The second segment of claimants that we're trying to get on board is those who exhausted their 13 weeks at the end of December 26th and their first new payable week for the new 11 weeks of PEUC would be January 2nd. And so those individuals we're trying to identify right now, and they're the next group of individuals that we're going to start paying PEUC for. Okay, so they will get uh, an additional, they'll be eligible to receive that additional 13 weeks? 11 weeks. 11 weeks. Initial was 13 and then additional 11 weeks. Now our hardest group, Catherine, is the third group, which are those individuals who have that lag that I talked about earlier. And so they exhausted prior to December 26th, but the new 11 weeks doesn't start till January 2nd, 2021. And so it's trying to program that gap in between where you're not eligible for a couple of weeks, but you still want to go on to PEUC. So you refuse going on to EB, choose to go on to PEUC, and we'll have to program that missing gaps in between where one program ends and the additional weeks begin. Okay, so they won't get anything. They won't get help during that period. That's correct. And how long is that? So it just depends. 
on when you exhausted your claim. So if you exhausted your claim, say, on the 19th of December, the new um, 11 weeks doesn't start till January 2nd. So the week of December 27th, is that's that new payable week. So the in-between week, December 26th, they wouldn't receive a payment. And of these three groups, what's the largest number that we're dealing with, you think? Is it in this third group? I would say the largest number is probably in the group that is exhausts on the 26th and then can move forward to the second group. What are you asking claimants to do at this point? Uh, what's the best way to get the information? Because, you know, we are hearing there's just lots of frustration. Right. They don't understand why there's a delay. Right. So we have sent out um, through different media some graphs or some charts on if you exhausted at this point or if you're still collecting, how you're being affected and what we'd like you to do. So those who are in that second group that um, are going to just move on, we've asked them to wait until we program that process. And so we have little notes on those charts on what each um, group would need to do in order to move forward. Right now, to tell you the truth, it's a waiting game. We really need to get our system in check and all the applicable aspects of these new provisions programmed and then move them forward. Well, when you say it's a waiting game, so wait, what are you waiting for? I'm a little confused. We're working on programming. So there are many different provisions that came with this new bill, and we need to program those provisions into our antiquated mainframe system. And so we're programming them in segments in those different categories of groups when they'll be able to receive their additional benefits. So you're asking claimants, please be patient. I hate to say please be patient because I know they've been very patient, and it's just a process that we have to take. It's We don't have a a choice either. These um, provisions came through this bill. We're required under federal law and regulations to follow these statutes. And so we have to make sure that the statutes are programmed accurately so that we pay out benefits as the bill allows us to. And you talked about the frustration with the mainframe system that you folks are working with. What's the plan for upgrading and modernizing? Prior to the pandemic, we were moving forward with a contractor. It was actually the state of Idaho who had a program that we were looking at to modernize the Hawaii unemployment insurance system. And we had already done a gap analysis and we had already received $13 million from the legislators to move forward with uh, modernization. When the pandemic hit, what happened was we were in discussions with Idaho and Idaho had stated that you know, they were in a bind and they didn't have the resources to help us move forward with this um, modernization project. And so they asked us to wait and see how it goes. And then eventually we were told they wouldn't be able to help us with this process. So in the meantime, we knew that we needed to move forward and get our system running so that we could efficiently and timely pay our claimants. With the way the antiquated mainframe system is up and running now, that is not a possibility. We don't have the ability to make changes as fluidly as we would like to. So we're currently working with a new contractor. We have a contract in hand that the RAGs are reviewing, and we are going to make a proposal to the um, IT section here at the state to ask them for approval to move forward with this new IT modernization project. 
And how soon will that be? So this 15th, and I think that's this Friday. Yep, this Friday we have a meeting to discuss the plan and show them our project and hopefully get approval. And once we get approval, we can get that contract signed. And they said it'll take about 18 months to implement. So it's still a year and a half away. Yes, But at least, at least we've started the groundwork. Correct. So of the $13 million that we received, $3 million was general funds and $10 million was a CIP funding. Can you share with our listeners what's the latest with the call center uh, because things got ramped up at the convention center? Is that still operating? Yes. So we were given approval by the governor for a special project to implement our own in-house call center. So we did start on January 4th. We brought all of the um, new hires in, at least one-third of them so far, and we've been up-training them. And this week we are starting to take a couple of calls from some of the offices to give them some in-house training, on-the-job training. And next week we will be 100% up and running with a quarter of our staff and answering those calls. Right now, our contractor, Maximus, is still answering calls, and they will be still with us until the end of this week. That was State Labor Director Ann Pereira Estacchio talking about the reasons why some claimants may see a lag in their unemployment checks, even though the federal CARES program has been extended. As you just heard, it's complicated and kind of confusing. For links to information about the new restrictions handed down to safeguard the additional federal money, head to our website. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. What should a garden be? You may think of lots of green, the scent of flowers, maybe vegetables, fruit trees, and then there's the never-ending weeding. They may be all integral parts of providing those moments of satisfaction when you sit back to enjoy your efforts in your garden's bounty. For many gardeners, this is life as it was intended to be, at least for those types of gardens. The kind in our backyard quiz today, though, is not a green one. Nope, the palette of colors in this garden is filled with shades of brown, black, and red. It's also a famous garden on the island of Lanai. One ancient ancient Hawaiian legend says that the rocks and boulders there were dropped from the sky by the gods while they were tending their gardens. Our question for you today, what is this name of this famous garden? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to strengthening communities statewide by supporting affordable housing, providing infrastructure, and creating jobs. Learn more at nareethawaii.com. All this week, the money chairs at the state legislature have been holding budget briefings as they prepare for the new session, which is to begin next Wednesday. We talked to Representative Sylvia Luke earlier this week about the economic outlook. Uh, the House Finance Chair is preparing that our recovery will now stretch through 2024. Yes, you heard right, 2024. The budget issue and economic recovery remain as one of top-of-mind issues. In addition to continuing our efforts for health and safety for our communities, it is a big concern only because we do not see tourism and other economic drivers rebounding quickly. What that means is the road to recovery will take years. And just to kind of give you a point of reference, we won't get to the 2019 pre-COVID revenue revenue intake until 2024. But if you can imagine, in 2024, the amount of cost of items and personnel would have increased just through inflation, right? So in just kind of thinking about the fact that we won't get the same amount of revenues coming in until, you know, five years later, basically, from 2019, this will have devastating impact on um, services and programs and things that government can provide. So it's very sobering. There's the short term and there's the long term. There's talks of furloughs and right, layoffs. Right. There is this general inclination that potential you know, tax increases or even furloughs will fix the problem. It will not. Um, if you think about the current budget situation, even with the Council on Revenues providing a better projection, the budget that we are looking at for the next two years, we still need to plug about you know, $1.7 billion of revenues. Even if we were to eliminate pretty much all of the Department of Education, it doesn't come close to the potential revenue loss. So that kind of tells you the amount of reduction that we need to do. And it is, as you recognize, as we're going through and listening to the budget briefings by the department, it is very sobering and sad at the same time because we're hearing about reduction in certain programs like programs for sex assault victims, programs in Hawaii Civil Rights Commission, certain Department of Health things, and, you know, you're hearing, like, one by one all the things that we have to cut, like Land Use Commission. You know, every department that we have heard so far, there's somebody out there going, okay, no, this is drastic. So hopefully, you know, and they're advocating to retain that department or retain that agency fully, but that comes at the price of cutting something else. So, you know, we're, we're basically stuck in very difficult position. 
We um, just talked to the labor director, Anastakio, and, you know, she was saying, yeah, that all the department heads have been told to look at, you know, 20% cuts. Correct. And, and how do you deal with all the other programs that, you know, labor is charged with, you know? I mean, I know unemployment comes from a different fund, but there's just so many things in the workforce picture that we rely on staff there at the labor department. And you know, you, you know, you were there at the convention center stepping up to help process those claims. Right, right. And, you know, Department of Labor is a good example. They provide grants for retraining. So during this time, you hero said we lost about 100,000 jobs. Those individuals may never return to the sector that they were working in. So they're going to need training or some kind of workforce development. As far as we know, the budget substantially eliminates certain grants for workforce training and eliminate grants. So these are grants to communities and organizations. And the other thing that Department of Labor provides is they also provide grants for immigrant services, legal representation for the immigrant population. I mean, for the time being, a substantial cut in these programs is going to have major impact. And people think, okay, if you're cutting government, it's basically government services. It's actually government services that provide assistance to nonprofits and organization and grants and contracts to those organizations that impact services. So it's not just government, you know, workers that are impacted. It's all the related programs that stem from contract, government contracts and grants. Well, I think as an example, Estacchio gave was that, you know, if we have fewer people to process these grants, we may have to apply for fewer grants. Right. And then which will lead to loss of federal monies. Overlaid on top of that, the budget that we're anticipating or currently working on is taking into account all the money that we're currently borrowing to pay for people's unemployment claims. So you probably heard by now the unemployment trust fund has been depleted by June. Um, That account had $500 million. That's all gone. So far from July to December, we borrowed about $700 million. That needs to be paid in full in November of 2022. Um, But that's only for six months. So can you imagine from January to whenever it is, you know, where we will continue to borrow to pay for people's unemployment claims. And I think people have, some people think that this money is being funded through the federal government or some other sources. Actually, you know, this money is that something that the state is borrowing that will have to be paid out of taxpayer dollars. Yeah, so... Any money, any leftover money that didn't get spent, any CARES money was to go into that fund, the labor fund, unemployment fund, but that's really just a drop in the bucket. Right, compared to how much money we're borrowing and how much money we will potentially borrow for the duration of this pandemic. We are taking um, major steps to restructure. So, for instance, we're going through every agency and we're looking at if certain agency is working at, you know, 70% capa- or uh, or 60% capacity, does it make sense for that agency to continue at this point 
or we are looking at if they cannot, is it an essential service that can be combined with other agencies? So this is going to be a very drastic and painful approach, but that's something that we need to do. So we are looking at government restructuring, where we need to combine resources, combine personnel to get some of the work done. The reality is, uh, on a normal session, a lot of the bills are uh, money-related. But as you can imagine, we're not in a position to give out tax exemptions or tax credits or appropriate money for new programs or even existing programs. So I think that in itself will eliminate a lot of the bills because, you know, if it's a bill that is requesting for, you know, even $300,000, it's $300,000 that we have to get from somewhere else. So what message do you want to send to the the mayors when they uh, come begging, you know, for their share of the hotel room tax, which we don't have a lot of. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the hotel room tax is one tax that has been reduced by 95%. So, um, you know, income tax has still been somewhat stable, and GET has been reduced, but not to the extent that TAT has. I think this is an opportunity for us to restructure TAT and look at what is TAT going for right now? And think about just because it, that's how it was done for decades, it may not be what we want to do. And this is an opportunity for for us to not just reshape tourism, but reshape the tourism industry itself, right? So what type of tourists do we want coming to Hawaii? How do we how do we leverage uh, tourist stock dollars and tourist spending and maximize those things? So um, I think those are the conversation that already started, and we will continue to have those conversations. It is going to be a, a tough road, and I think the, the faster we can get the vaccines out and, you know, we stabilize our the health and safety of our community, the faster we can get a road to recovery for our um, economic health as well. So it, it will be challenging not just for this year, not just this year, but the next several years as we you know, continue to restructure. Do you think it's going to be easier because, you know, you did a couple of years ago start taking people to task about, you know, department heads, about their departments and, you know, their mission, you know, so you started that process It's interesting that you said that because the work that we have put in place several years ago by, you know, looking at curtailing special funds, you know, vacancies, doing some of these true budgeting has really helped us prepare for what we are dealing with now. And the fact that, you know, I mean, after I took over as finance chair, uh, we were able to put in close to $400 million in rainy day. Prior to that, you know, it barely had about $20 million. So that really helped to set the groundwork and ease the pain of some of the things that we're about to do. That was House Finance Chair Sylvia Luke talking about our economic recovery. We plan to hear from the Senate Money Chair Donovan Dela Cruz tomorrow on his take on the recovery plan and the proposed state budget.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to volunteer at friendsofhakalauforest.org. This week on Says You, Spelling on Radio. This, <laughs> this is excitement. Yeah. <laughs> spelling on Radio. <laughs> the future of entertainment, ladies and gentlemen. Spelling. It's a capital offense. <laughs> it's fast, it's fun, it's some of the most colorful radio on the air, and you're invited. Says You, beginning this evening at 6.30. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin Tuesday, January 19th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. It is now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Education reporter Sue Von Lee all this week has been focused on stories about remote learning and how to help our teachers and students. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. So your story today looks at a new training initiative for teachers. It talks about, yeah, a new initiative that's being set up through a federal relief funds that Hawaii received for education purposes last year. This is part of the CARES Act, but it is separate from a separate pot of money the Hawaii Department of Education received. So it is um, a joint effort here between public, private schools, charter schools, and the UH system. Oh, interesting. Okay, so it's a, it's it's kind of sweeping. <laughs> it's it's being called a joint effort by project leads, and they're really emphasizing how this is going to be a coordinated effort, really to um, set up what it is. Is it's being described as sort of a digital portal, so um, unique online lessons materials that. Uh, teachers, parents, and students can access. Um, they're aiming to finish it by the end of 2022. So what this would do is bring um, Hawaii educators together to really brainstorm and create unique lesson plans to for um, families to use. Um, as we know, this past year, um, uh, digital learning because of the pandemic has been extremely challenging. There's been wildly inconsistent quality um, materials for families to use, especially in the public schools that have closed their uh, campuses. Um, so we've had um, you know, curricula that has ranged from um, Acellus, which we all know by now is um, uh, considered to be um, just very lackluster by many families and by the DOE itself. Um, and so I think this is a, an effort that is meant to address some of those deficiencies that we've seen this year. Okay, but uh, this isn't something that's going to be rolled out like tomorrow, though. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. I think what they're doing is planning for this starting in the summer. They're going to bring um, teachers together for summer workshops and training institutes starting this summer and next summer with the intent to have this rolled out by September of 2022. Okay. Is but, what I've been told, yeah. Right. So so uh, uh, at least, though, it's going to, to be a boost in the arm of, yeah, as you mentioned, not just public school students, but private school students and uh, higher education. Absolutely. It's going to be a collaboration. Okay. And then you also had a story yesterday that talked about uh, some uh, programs that might be uh, out there to help students. 
Uh, yeah. So yesterday, I wrote a story about how the DOE has contracted with uh, several tutoring firms, so private outside tutoring agencies, um, to offer this as an option for public school students. Um, and so this is um, there's no dollar figure attached to this. There, this is not spent with federal relief funds. But what the DOE has done is basically chosen based on requests for proposals um, about five tutoring firms. To, to come in and work with mostly Title I DOE students. So Title I schools are those in which about 50% of the student body is considered economically disadvantaged. And based upon what we've seen from uh, grades and, and data so far, the students who are from low-income households or who are struggling with um, language and English language abilities are the ones who are struggling the most academically. So the idea, I believe, behind this effort by the DOE is to pair DOE public school students with private tutors. But of course, the big catch is that schools are on the hook to pay for this out of their own budgets. And that's the big open question. Will they be able to afford to do so with um, diminished budgets this year due to the impacts of um, the pandemic? It, it is interesting, though, you know, to think that they will actually be using private tutors uh, from these four companies. Sure, and and to emphasize that you know private tutor sounds just you know so removed and um, you know outside the realm of uh, public schools, but these are these are agencies, some of whom have told me that they employ um, people who live in Hawaii, but they happen to work for their firm. So these could be college graduates, these could be education school graduates. Um, you know they may have a pulse on what's happening in Hawaii. Um, some of them might be tutoring remotely. Some of them could be doing it in person. I think it just depends. I think the details are still being formed. Uh, I think these partnerships are yet to be forged um, when it comes to the school and the tutors. But what struck me as interesting was just the fact that the DOE was tapping these firms at all. It just goes to show you that they are concerned about the um, about um, catching students up who are falling behind academically. All right. Good story. But thank you so much, Suvan. You bet. Thank you. That was reporter Suvan Lee with today's Reality Check. To read her stories, visit civilbeat.org. Earlier in the show, we asked you about a famous garden on Lanai. It's not your typical green garden full of plant life, though. No, this one resembles a lunar landscape featuring rock towers, spires, and formations formed by centuries of erosion. Located about 45 minutes from Lanai City on the northwest side of the island, this garden can be found at the end of Rocky Polihua Road. When the sun sets, a warm glow suffuses the rocks, illuminating them with vibrant reds, oranges, and deep purples. While one legend claims that the rock formations were dropped from gods in the sky while working in their gardens, another version states that the rocks at Keahi Akavelo, also known as the Garden of the Gods, houses the spirits of ancient Hawaiian warriors. Congratulations to our winner, Michelle Maderos from Waimea. She says she visited there in the late 1990s and knew the answer. That is today's quiz. If you have one you'd like to share, write to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
It's no secret 2020 was a terrible year for Hawaii tourism. The 14-day travel quarantine effectively shut down tourism for most of the year, but the pre-travel testing program that started in October has brought more visitors. Shandi is the executive vice president and chief marketing officer with Outrigger Hotels and Resorts. He spoke with the Conversations' Jason Ubai about how the company's Hawaii properties have fared during this past year. I was actually reflecting on the past year with my team, so we literally shut almost everything down in late March. And with some exceptions, as you probably know, Outrigger owns and manages you know a lot of properties on the islands. We're probably most known for the Outrigger Waikiki Beach Resort, which is over 50 years. It's been you know located in that iconic location right right in Waikiki, the Outrigger Reef, Waikiki Beach Resort as well. That's over by Fort Tarusi, and then we've got the Waikiki Beachcomber by Outrigger and the two Ohana properties here, the East and then the Waikiki Malia property. We also manage the Embassy Suites and then a couple airport hotels and then obviously a lot of other condominiums. So we have a lot of inventory here, and we were heavily impacted in March. We took the decision to keep open a few of our properties, and they've stayed open throughout the whole pandemic, so I'll probably start with those because that's kind of an interesting story. Outrigger Waikiki, for a variety of reasons, we decided to keep open and really for a period of time it was a mix of military crew and then first responders Um, we partnered with the hawaii tourism authority which worked in conjunction with the governor and hpcb the major market contractor for the state and we provided rooms for critical care nurses for doctors for people who may have had an exposure to COVID, etc so that that was a big part of our initial occupancy if you will and then slowly over time and, and frankly into the summer we saw a pretty decent upswell in local business. So the Kamaina business, you know, really kept us afloat at Outrigger Waikiki. Kind of a similar story at Embassy Suites. That was pretty much the mix that we saw there. And so we saw occupancies in the summer probably in the 40 to 50% or higher on the weekends. So that was, you know, a little bit of positive news. Allowed us to keep some properties open. The Ohana Malia we also kept open, but we closed the Outrigger Reef and we closed the Ohana East property, which is where our corporate office is, uh, is located. So kind of a mix, if you will. And then, you know, when Safe Travels was rolled out in October, you know, we did see kind of an initial pickup, which was positive for us. You know, not significant. It's, it's interesting. It, de- it depends on kind of who publishes, you know, the data and, and when. But I tend to rely on the data that's produced by the research department at HTA. Jennifer Chun and her team there do a phenomenal job. They publish that research daily. And, you know, we saw a few thousand visitors in the first few days up to probably a peak of, you know, four or 5,000 people. So that gave us some confidence to open the Waikiki Beachcomber by Outrigger, which we opened that property in early November. So that property now has been open. The other thing that that allows us to do is to open restaurants and activity desks as well. And as an example, Hawaii Aroma Cafe and Maui Brewing Company, you know, two local restaurants that are located in the lobby level of the Waikiki Beachcomber also are able to open. The activities desk at Waikiki Beachcomber is also open. So really hotels are kind of, you think of them as almost like an ecosystem, right? They're a little mini economy. Uh, Sometimes we just think about housekeepers and front desk uh, folks, but the reality is, you know, we're connected to restaurants, which are connected to wholesale suppliers, which are connected to farms. So we really, you know, support a whole range of businesses. So I'd say that long story short, you know, it's been slow. 
We've had a little bit of some bright spots along the way, but generally about half of our inventory still is, is closed, and the properties that are operating are now dipping back into the 20 to 30% occupancy range, which is obviously not healthy and, frankly, not profitable for us. So it's been a challenge. Now, at the properties that are open, uh, you mentioned restaurants such as Maui Brewing Company were open. As a visitor, what service and amenities can you expect? Like, What's available and what's still closed at the moment? You know, we get a lot of feedback from... You know, customers, visitors, as well as our partners, you know, on the mainland, you know, to try to understand what's open and what's not. Because it's been confusing times. You know, a lot shut down in late March, and then slowly things have reopened. As I mentioned, at the Outrigger Waikiki Beach Resort, which has stayed open throughout, um, you know, thankfully our friends at Duke's and Hula Grill have pretty much stayed open throughout. Hula Grill had shut down for a short period of time, but effectively Duke's has been open uh, throughout for a period of time and had to go to takeout only, obviously. Then it went to 25%, uh, which is still just operating under, so you can only seat 25% of the restaurant capacity, socially distanced, you know, with tables six feet apart and groups of up to five. For a period of time, it was only for families, and now it's for a group of five can be from, from mixed. They do have live entertainment, so if you're a Henry Capono fan, you can go out on Sunday and, and see him perform and Bobby Madero on Friday and we took the decision to have live music there. It's part of the overall experience of being at Dukes and being in an outrigger property. We do it outside. We do it behind plexiglass. We don't allow dancing. You know, So we've had to modify a lot of the behaviors, but we've tried to create an experience. I mean, that's what you know, staying at one of our properties is all about or eating at one of our, our restaurants is all about. And the staff has done a great job, and obviously keeping our host safe is of paramount importance, and obviously keeping guests clean and safe is important as well. And so way back in March, we actually started working on a program called the Outrigger Clean Commitment. And we launched that in, I want to say the second week in April. It was a a global task force that we stood up quickly led by our head of operations here, Mike Schaff, and uh, head of operations for Asia Pacific, Tony Pedroni. And we worked with Ecolab, and we created a program that really, you know, very comprehensive. It was modeled on a, a national program from the American Hotel and Lodging Association, and also Mufi Hanneman and the team at HLTA here uh, created a similar initiative. Again, first and foremost is keeping hosts healthy, and then obviously keeping our guests healthy. So social distancing plays a key role. You'll see in you know our elevators, on our lobbies, on stairs, you know, our stickers reminding people to stay six feet apart. We have signage up throughout the property explaining the the program and all the protocols. We have plexiglass shields now installed, so when you go to check in, you actually don't have any direct contact with our front desk folks. You can only have four people in an elevator at a time. We have sanitation you know, stations all over the property from the time you enter to the time you leave. We actually were one of the first to implement a mask policy before the state did. So if you were at the Outrigger Waikiki back in April or May, you know, you were, you were required to wear a mask. And so that had some challenges with some guests, but generally people have complied from the early days and clearly now it's, it's mandatory, so there's no issues there. And then we invested in electrostatic sprayers and then these UV wands, which we use, you know, daily and nightly to clean the rooms, any touch points that our hosts would have as well as our guests would have. So it's a pretty comprehensive program. Our restaurants also follow that program as well. And so we've been able to stay safe and stay open. We also have the Sunrise Shack for breakfast at the Outrigger Waikiki Beach Resort. And then Faith uh, Surf School, the Moniz family, an awesome family, probably the leading family of surf now, I think, with the boys and the girls 
now young men and young women who are in professional surfers, and then uh, Tammy and Tony, the founders, they're conducting surf lessons. Um, you can rent beach chairs now through Aqualani and, and Mike's team there as well. So, again, socially distanced, spaced out, you know, only a certain amount of the time, time limits on those. So everything has had to modify and change, you know, but we are open and we're in the business of providing hospitality and we, we want to continue to do it even during these COVID times. And so a couple other restaurants to note would be Appetito here, the popular pizza and wine bar that's in the Ohana East. So even though this hotel is closed, the team at Appetito uh, decided to open. It's a popular place with locals and it's a great concept. And so they've been open for about uh, six to eight weeks and it's great to see that. So come on down and support them if you can. That's on Cahillo at the uh, Ohana East Rivals, um, the sports bar uh, down at Waikiki Malia uh, is open. And then Waikiki Beach Walk, uh, we actually developed that whole property and manage it. And that's down on near Lure Street there, near the reef and anchored by the Hokulani. That whole area, so you have the Art House, Giovanni Pastrami, Ruth Chris Steakhouse, uh, Roy's as well. Uh, those restaurants are open, and most of the retail in that area is open as well. So we're trying to get open. We're trying to uh, to get people back to work and and employed. And uh, you know the festive season, if you will, the Christmas, New Year's time. We did see some visitors coming, and so again, some people had uh, a decent December. But you know, generally speaking, you know, I would say the restaurants, the retail, definitely the hospitality industry in general is is operating at around 20 to 30 percent, which is for most not very profitable. Uh, but we're trying to get people back to work, and we're we're trying to to get more, we call them hosts, our employee base, get more of our hosts uh, some operating hours so that they can make a living and obviously keep food on the table. Can you talk about uh, your staffing there? What is it compared to prior to the pandemic and what are you looking at now? You know, staffing for us at the end of the day for most hospitality companies and, you know, I don't want to speak for the the restaurants and retail, but I know they're following along similar lines. You know, it's really tied to occupancy. So occupancy levels are really going to drive your staffing levels. And so for us, you know, we're running somewhere in, again, 20 to 30% range. I just looked at, so I had the exact numbers. So the team over at HTA published first week in January. These are the state totals for occupancy. And this is for the week of December 27th to January 2nd. So historically, that's the busiest week of the year for Hawaii. So, for instance, for last year, the state ran just under 90%, which is effectively sold out. I mean, that means, you know, pretty much all the rooms are occupied, 89%. This year for the state (laughs) occupancy for the, I have to laugh, it's sad, the laugh was 30%. You know, so you're down 60%, and that's for the entire state. Interestingly, the island of Hawaii, which is usually the laggard, had the highest performance. It actually ran around 40%. In Waikiki, uh, it was at 30%. And so that's obviously where the bulk of the inventory is for the state. So we're running around 30%, and that was the busiest week that we've had effectively since March for the state, Um, and that just shows you the challenges. We're going to probably see those numbers cut in half, I would say, for the next probably 60 to 90 days. So, Jason, we're probably going to be back in the high teens to low 20s, maybe a little bit better on the weekends. And so from a staffing perspective, that's about the area that we're staffing. We're staffing at about 20 to 30%. Of a, of a normal, you know, time period. And so, you know, that means, you know, depending on the hotel company, between 60, probably and 80% of our staff remains either furloughed or, or just out of work permanently. Um, so it's really, it's really been devastating. If you think about how many people are directly or indirectly employed 
in the tourism industry and in hospitality specifically, you know, it's it's between 20 and 40 percent of the state is somehow connected to hospitality. And so, you know, we're all feeling it. And uh, in addition to, to whoever's still employed, most of it has taken, you know, pay cuts and, uh, and and taken more pay cuts to try to get more people back to work. And, you know, obviously it's a sacrifice we have to make, but many of us are still employed. So we want to obviously share the burden here if we can. So, you know, we're hoping to see this improve. You know, I've seen projections for the state at between four and six million uh, visitors for 2021. 2019, we had a record year. You know, obviously many people reported on that. I think we had 10.4 million, you know, visitors. So if we had four to five million visitors, it'd be about 50% of the visitors, and obviously that would translate probably into about a 50% occupancy for the hotels. Maybe maybe a little bit less than that, 40 45%. So that's that's the best case scenario. You know, the quick math on it. I, I think those numbers are wildly optimistic. November, as a state, we saw 183,000 visitors for the month of November. So, you know, multiply that by 12, you know, you don't get to 5 million. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's going to be probably closer to, to 2 to 3, which is what 2020 was, would probably end at. So, unfortunately, I wish I had better news to report, but from a hotel perspective, we're probably going to be, you know, 20 to 30% occupancy into Q2, and then maybe by Q3 and Q4 as the vaccines roll out and people get more confidence to travel, uh, we can hopefully see 40 to 50% occupancy. But for a total year basis, we'll probably run around 30 35%. And that's probably where our staffing levels will be. That was Sean D. with Outrigger Hotels and Resorts talking about the past year in Hawaii tourism with a very sobering look at the year ahead. And full disclosure, Outrigger's Hotels is an underwriter of Hawaii Public Radio. On the beach at Waikiki, that's where you find me. Here on the south side, beach boys paradise. Dicks on Sunday. Support for HPR comes from Parker School in Waimea on Hawaii Island. Committed to knowing, valuing, and nurturing each student, announcing a virtual open house Wednesday, January 20th. Details and registration available at parkerschoolhawaii.org. Keeping secrets tethers us to the past. There are a lot of reasons why I lie about that part of my life. And sometimes keeps us from stepping into the future. I've not told anyone because I'm afraid of what might happen. The psychological costs of secret keeping. This week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7, following says you. Support for HPR comes from Compassion and Choices, celebrating the second anniversary of the Our Care, Our Choice Act, allowing terminally ill adults to request a prescription for medical aid in dying. CompassionandChoices.org slash Hawaii. That does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we hear from House and Senate leadership about their priorities for the new session. Do you plan to get the COVID-19 vaccine? Share your thoughts on the issue. What did you think about the impeachment of our president? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. You can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.